0: is Crimes of the Centuries. The police officer was a tad nervous as he knocked on the apartment door. He knew that he was there to arrest someone violent, someone who had made headlines all over the state of Ohio the past few months in 1977, but he didn't know what the living situation was. For all the officer knew, this guy lived with 10 bodybuilders and had a closet full of guns. That's why the cop decided to come armed with pizza and pretend he'd been called there for a delivery. He could peek inside the apartment and assess the threat level before announcing that he was there on a warrant through the Ohio State University's police department in connection with a string of robberies and rapes. A young man opened the door and looked confused when a pizza was presented. I didn't order any pizza, he said. Officer Craig said, Aren't you Billy Milligan? This is for you. I'm not Billy, the guy insisted. Craig's ruse went on just long enough for him to get a look over the young man's shoulder. Then he dropped the pizza, announced he was with the police and slapped handcuffs on the young man who seemed completely dazed. Officer Craig, concerned that the man he was arresting had said he wasn't the target sought at all, pulled out a photo from his pocket and felt reassured. Yes, this was Billy Milligan. Granted, he was missing the mustache the cop had expected, but the photo and the man in cuffs shared a facial mole that was too similar to be a coincidence. Craig told Milligan, you're under arrest. Milligan's response wasn't the straight up denial Craig was used to hearing. I hope I didn't hurt anyone, the young man said. That would be the first in a deluge of comments so bizarre that they'd lead everyone investigating Milligan's case, including the county prosecutor who had leveled the charges against him, to believe that he might be mentally ill, turning what had started as a shocking case into an historic one with legal repercussions no one could have imagined. If you listen to the Hillside Stranglers two-parter we just did on Crimes of the Centuries, you know that this case is related in a weird way to that one. Chronologically, this one came first, and I debated reshuffling things and releasing this episode before the Hillside ones, especially because the Hillside cases are higher profile to boot. But there's something interesting in backtracking here. See, the legal aspects of the cases against cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Bono, the so-called Hillside Stranglers, likely wouldn't have been as compelling or worrisome to investigators at the time had the Billy Milligan case never happened but it had happened, and pretty recently at that. And the dust really hadn't settled yet in regards to whether experts on both sides of the case would agree that Bianchi had battling personalities inside of him, whereas the experts in the Milligan case all agreed that he seemed to. This can all get confusing, so first, let me back up. Billy was born February 14th, 1955, as the middle of three children. His mother was Dorothy Sands, a beautiful singer who had been raised in Ohio, but who had left to perform at clubs around Miami. Dorothy had previously been married to a guy named Dick Jonas, who'd been her high school sweetheart. That marriage was short-lived, though, purportedly because Jonas struggled with alcohol abuse and could get mean. In Florida, Dorothy met a comedian and musician named Johnny Morrison, who was married to someone else, but that apparently wasn't much of a problem for either of them. No word on how Johnny's wife felt about the situation. Regardless, Dorothy and Johnny moved in together. In 1953, they had their first son, Jim. Billy came two years later, followed by daughter Kathy Jo the following year. Now, Billy's life had started a little rough straight away month
1: old, and he stopped breathing. So they rushed him to the hospital.
0: This is Kathy Joe, Billy's sister, speaking in a Netflix documentary. It turned out that he had a growth in his throat. When she handed him to the
1: intern, the intern said, uh, I, I'm sorry, he's, he's already dead.
0: That was not what mom Dorothy was willing to hear.
1: And she screamed at the intern, no, he's not. You have to do something. And so they took him back, and, and somehow they, he was revived. Nurses and doctors, at, after his first birthday, um, sent him a card saying, you know, you, you gave everybody quite a scare.
0: Kathy Jo learned of this when she was far older, of course. She was born New Year's Eve of 1956. Of her two brothers, she was closest with Billy growing up, largely because they were less than a year apart in age. It wasn't an easy childhood for any of them. While Jim and Kathy Jo never had the health scare Billy had in his infancy, they still struggled because... My father did have trouble with uh,
1: depression. I, I hesitate to use schizophrenia because that was just such the popular
0: term of the time. She's right about that. It seemed everyone and their brother was diagnosed schizophrenic in the 50s, so it's tough to know in hindsight if that legitimately was a fair diagnosis for Johnny. Either way, no one questions that he was unstable. Kathy, Joe, and Billy's brother, Jim, said,
2: His demons were, I, I think, his gambling habit, his drinking, the drugs.
0: He was also incredibly jealous of Dorothy. If she talked to other men, which was not an unusual thing for a lounge club singing lady to do, after all, he would fly into rages. Never mind that he himself was literally married to someone else. Give me a second while I unroll my eyes. My
2: earliest memory of of any trouble was I I walked in, I heard some noises in the bedroom. And my father was, I don't know if he was using his fist, but he was certainly hitting my mother. I didn't know it was my mother until she sat up and she said, Jimbo, everything's okay. Mom's okay, go ahead and leave.
0: It sounds like this must have been a turning point for Dorothy because it wasn't long after that. My mother decided that he could no longer
1: stay at the house because she felt that he was dangerous to us and she asked him to leave.
0: Johnny attempted to take his life with sleeping pills, which Billy reportedly was home to witness. Johnny was saved and spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. It wasn't long after his release that he set out again to kill himself. This time, no one intervened in time to stop him. In a lengthy suicide note, he placed blame squarely on Dorothy's shoulders. Dorothy tried to shield her kids from what their father had done for fear they would blame themselves. She said that their dad had
2: Died of a cerebral hemorrhage, is what she told us when we were younger. And I didn't really know what that meant, but uh, that was how it was left with us as as children.
0: Raising three children alone in Miami would be daunting for a single parent today, but for an unmarried woman in the 1960s, the thought was downright terrifying. Dorothy decided to move back to Amanda, Ohio, the little village in Fairfield County where she had grown up. She reconnected with Dick Jonas, her high school sweetheart turned ex-husband. Things at first seemed okay. The kids made friends in the small town and had each other as well.
1: Billy and I played together a lot. There's an a age of almost five years between Jim and I, so he probably had less patience for me, than, you know. But Billy and I played together
0: often.
2: We laughed. We played. We, we had a great time.
0: Reuniting with Dick Jonas wasn't a terribly shocking idea, certainly not for the era. As Kathy Joes said, She couldn't manage financially by herself. She needed a man in her life. At least she thought she did. But even she had to admit that Dick Jonas wasn't the type of man she needed. He was a foul-mouthed truck driver, which maybe on its own wouldn't have been problematic. But he drank, and he hit. And the marriage went south pretty quickly. Dorothy and Dick broke up a second time, after which Dorothy got a job with the DuPont plant in nearby Circleville, Ohio, which was about 12 miles west of Amanda. She also returned to singing.
1: And so she would come up here to Columbus at the Clock Restaurant and other nightclubs up here.
0: And that's where she met a man named Chalmer Milligan, a single dad to a daughter named Chala, almost exactly Billy's age. Chalmer seemed nice and interesting and charming, and he and Dorothy decided to merge families. They'd not only get married, but they would also adopt each other's kids. So Dorothy adopted Chala, Chalmer adopted Jim, Bill, and Kathy Joe, and together, the six became the Milligan family. To outsiders, this all seemed like a step towards stability for the whole crew. But in reality, it was the beginning of Billy's descent into madness. Once Dorothy Sands married Chalmer Milligan, nicknamed Daddy Chal by his three adopted children, things within the blended household turned ugly. Chalmer was controlling and jealous. Jim and Kathy Joe later described a fight they remembered in the Netflix documentary, Monsters Inside, the 24 Faces of Billy Milligan.
2: I remember once there was a very violent argument about the fact that she was Seen at work by him, she was talking to a black man.
1: And he's screaming and he gets on top of her and he's banging her head on the tile. And we're standing in the hallway and he looks over and he screams at us to go to the bedrooms.
0: Kathy said she remembered looking at Billy, who at this point was young, still in elementary school. Kathy remembered that her brother was physically there, but he seemed vacant. He was hunched, she said, and emitting a strange vibrating noise from his mouth. And he was buzzing, I, I called it buzzing. He's bzz- 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 bzz.
1: And he had this little character he called himself, Little bee. but everything's gonna be all right, don't worry about it, it's gonna be all right, it's gonna be all right, she would say. And I was like, okay,
0: you know, I was seven. Things were definitely not all right, not even close. Chalmer was unkind to all of the children, but for some reason, he saved the worst of his treatment for Billy. Now, before I get into that, I wanna touch on something I grappled with while researching this case. And that goes back to the fact that I did most of my research after learning about the Hillside Stranglers case, and more to the point, Kenneth Bianchi's claims he had multiple personalities. What I'd read about Bianchi was without question biased against Bianchi's claim. A few experts believed him, but by no means the majority and certainly none of the law enforcement officials who investigated the case. In his book, Hillside Stranglers, Two of a Kind, author Darcy O'Brien described Bianchi's performances as his alleged alter ego Steve in flippant terms, decrying him as a terrible actor who the author's own 15-year-old daughter could immediately see through. Having seen some of the interviews, I get it, but that's not the point. The stories about Bianchi do not attempt to be objective, and I kept that in mind while also coming to my own conclusions about the veracity of Bianchi's claims. Bullshit. Because that was my starting point in researching the Milligan case, I walked into Milligan thinking I'd find his quote-unquote performances as his alternate personalities equally ridiculous. I didn't. But I also say that carefully because the research material available on Milligan is much friendlier toward him. Daniel Keyes' book, The Minds of Billy Milligan, is firmly entrenched in believing Billy, so much so that the way Keyes describes similar-sounding doctors is decidedly swayed based on whether they believe Billy or not. A pudgy, bespectacled psychiatrist on Billy's side might be described as professorial or grandfatherly, while one who opposes Billy's diagnosis will waddle into the courtroom. Now, I lay this out to be transparent. I'm not a doctor, so I won't pretend to have this figured out, especially when there's disagreement amongst actual professionals who supposedly know what they're doing. But what I do notice is this important difference between the cases of Ken Bianchi and Billy Milligan. With Bianchi, there's documentation he was troubled, no question. But there's no corroboration that he was abused. No one stepped forward later to say, Yeah, I had a sense something terrible was happening to this boy, but I didn't know how to help him. That's not the case with Billy Milligan. His siblings, his mother, even his neighborhood friends say that while they didn't know the extent of the abuse he faced, they knew he was mistreated badly. And the one common denominator in dissociative identity disorder is exactly that. They stem from childhood trauma. This isn't standard, life's tough, get used to it kid kind of trauma. This is such unbelievably severe, sadistically cruel trauma that a child's mind can't process it in the slightest, and so their sense of self fractures into pieces, and each of those pieces takes on just as much as it can handle, and nothing more. This is Todd Grande, a PhD who delves into mental health topics on his YouTube channel with nearly a million subscribers. He dedicated an episode to Milligan and Dissociative Identity Disorder, called DID for short.
3: There are five diagnostic criteria for this disorder in the DSM. One, disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states. The states are often referred to as alters. Two, recurrent gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic events.
0: Three, which to me sounds like a pretty no-duck criteria, the disruption has to cause significant distress. I'm not sure how losing chunks of time and memory wouldn't cause distress, but okay. Four, it can't be tied to someone's cultural or religious practices. I don't know how that would happen, but the gist is there can't be an obvious explanation. Along the same lines, number five, the disruption can't be traced back to substances or medical conditions. As in, you aren't DID if you have memory gaps that can be explained away by an acid trip. In his episode, Grande offers a succinct rundown of the 10 first-identified personalities in Billy's case.
3: The main personality, or core personality, is William Stanley Milligan. He's a 6-foot-tall, 26-year-old high school dropout who was later referred to as the Unfused Billy. Arthur is a 22-year-old Englishman who speaks with a British accent. Reagan is a 23-year-old Yugoslavian. Alan is an 18-year-old manipulator. Tommy is a 16-year-old escape artist who is antisocial and belligerent. Danny is a 14-year-old who is fearful of men. Christine is a three-year-old English girl. Christopher is 13. The last personality of the initial 10 is Adelana. She is a 19-year-old lesbian. She is introverted, cooks, cleans the house, and writes poetry.
0: As you can hear, these personalities varied on a lot of fronts, like their gender and age and nationality. But they overlapped in some areas, too. They were all artistic, for example. Though it's really fascinating to look through the artwork created because the different personalities had different fortes. Tommy specialized in landscapes, Alan in portraits. Alan, incidentally, was the only personality who was right-handed. Danny preferred painting still lifes. He wouldn't do landscapes because he was the personality who experienced being buried alive, as we'll discuss here shortly. Now, as I said, these were the first 10 identified personalities, but in total, Billy supposedly had 24. Most of those remaining ones had been deemed, quote-unquote, undesirables by Arthur, who was sort of the de facto boss of all the personalities. Arthur, who is basically the smarty pants of the group, had figured out what was happening to himself and, by extension, to Billy, when he noticed that he'd be missing chunks of time from his memory. Arthur heard other voices and began to keep track of who else was sharing Billy's body. He described their turns in the forefront as... On the spot. That
3: was the term. they He would say that whoever it was that was talking to me was...
0: That was George Harding, a psychiatrist who helped treat Milligan when he was still a teenager. Because the different personalities were different ages, some as young as three years old, Arthur used the spotlight analogy to help them all understand what was happening. Arthur had a sense of self-preservation. So when one of the personalities behaved in a way on the spot that could hurt Billy or jeopardize the others, Arthur would banish them, he'd label them undesirable, and take away their spotlight privileges. He couldn't outright destroy or kill them, but he could keep them buried, more or less, deeper in Billy's psyche. And before I get back to the undesirables, a quick rundown on Billy's criminal development. In his teens, Billy could be infuriating to deal with because his behavior would be so unpredictable. Family members sometimes thought he was just weird or goofy. They'd make jokes about him being in a British mood, for example, when he began inexplicably speaking with a haughty accent in front of friends. When they would have a conversation with him that he would forget, they figured he was flighty. When he denied doing something they absolutely knew he did, they would get frustrated with his lying. Some of the so-called undesirables cause problems. They sold drugs, they robbed gay men hooking up at rest stops, easy victims, according to that altar, because not only were those men vulnerable, but they weren't likely to report the crimes to police because most weren't keen in the 1970s to let the world know they were having anonymous gay sex in public restrooms. Arthur would try to banish the ones causing these problems, but that, of course, came retroactively. Milligan got caught. It was clear he was more disturbed than criminal, though so as a teen still in high school, Milligan was sent to the Harding Hospital in Worthington, Ohio. Founded by George Harding in 1916, it specialized in psychiatric care. It was during Billy's seven months in this hospital that he began talking about Chalmers' abuse. He explained that the worst stuff didn't happen in the Milligan house, but rather on a farm Chalmers would go to to tend often with only one of the kids in tow at a time, Billy's brother Jim again.
2: Chalmers' father owned a farm in Bremen, Ohio, 88 acres. I think it became a place where Chalmers could reprimand, punish, and discipline us more than he could probably around the house.
0: At Harding, Billy began describing awful abuse. Chalmer would tie him to a tractor, would physically beat him, would promise to bury him on the farm and tell Billy's mother Dorothy not just that Billy had run away, but that he'd done it because he hated her. Billy also described Chalmer raping him. Billy said once Chalmer, in an effort to ensure Billy's silence, handed him a shovel. Psychologist Sheila Porter. He related being forced to dig a grave, and
1: lay in that grave and having a metal pipe put over his face with an opening and having the grave filled in so he was almost buried alive and having Chalmers urinate down the opening of the pipe onto his face.
0: Billy wasn't diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder at Harding in the early 1970s, but his doctors believed his stories of abuse and, when subsequent doctors applied the DID label, those original doctors didn't argue. It made sense in hindsight, but they'd never treated a dissociative case and it simply hadn't occurred to them. Billy instead was treated for schizophrenia, psychosis, and histrionic personality disorder. By the way, it's worth noting that Chalmer vehemently denied all of these allegations and was never charged with a thing. He died in 1988 at the age of 61. Now, that Billy's original doctors didn't even consider DID isn't surprising because people didn't talk about multiple personalities much before the mid-1970s, even though the idea that one body could house many different people, so to speak, has been batted around for centuries. The first documented case was in the early 1800s when a woman named Mary Reynolds was described as having fits of hysteria. According to one case study I found via PubMed, quote, During the attacks, Miss Reynolds might sleep 18 hours a day and then awaken with large discrepancies in her memory, penmanship, and disposition, end quote. To be clear, though, Mary Reynolds likely wasn't the first case of the condition. It's just the first one documented. Experts who've gone back to examine notes from 16th century exorcisms are pretty sure those attempts at expelling demons weren't triggered by possession, but by dissociation. Now, this is the type of disorder that is tough to diagnose for a lot of reasons, one of which being that it's tough to know when someone's faking it. It's generally not questioned nowadays that Ken Bianchi was faking it. Dr. Martin Orne, the psychiatrist and psychologist who testified against Bianchi, said that the doctors who initially diagnosed Bianchi had actually planted the idea of multiples in Bianchi's head, prompting him to start behaving differently under fake hypnosis as his supposed alter ego, Steve Walker. Bianchi's performance was enhanced by his viewing of the TV movie Sybil starring Sally Field. Orrin interviewed Bianchi with a sort of "Ah shucks Columbo attitude, but he was actually shrewdly testing him while sounding like he believed Bianchi's diagnosis. He casually said something like, you know, you're an interesting case because you only have two personalities. Most cases have at least three. And wouldn't you know it, Bianchi, soon after, introduced a third personality, a young boy. That's one of the reasons Dr. Orne thought he was faking. Milligan, meanwhile, wasn't so suggestible. The British character Arthur had predated his hospital stay, so had the martial arts expert with the Slovak accent. When Billy would be around young kids, he'd suddenly begin acting like he was one of them. It had been this way for years. So if Billy were faking, he was at least disturbed enough that he could maintain consistent backstories and personalities for literally years before doctors diagnosed him, which in and of itself seems like a not normal thing to do. So you might be thinking, okay, I get the mental health stuff, but where's the crime? As described in the intro, Billy Milligan was arrested in October 1977 on suspicion of robbery and rape. Supposedly, per his doctor's explanations, it went like this Billy couldn't hold on to a job for very long because one personality might be okay with a gig and even be skilled at it, while another one might hate it and also suck at it. The bosses at these jobs would get really frustrated. One day they'd have this enthusiastic, great worker, and then the next he'd be surly and seem to have no idea what he was doing. So he'd be fired. The Slovak personality named Reagan was the only non-undesirable that Arthur allowed to break the law because Reagan supposedly had a moral code that ensured he would only break laws for survival and he would never hurt women or children. Reagan got worried that money was drying up since Billy kept getting fired, so he formed a plan to rob some people so that Billy could pay the rent. Reagan saw it as a form of protection. But Reagan insisted he would never hurt a woman, and yet two of the women Reagan robbed had been raped. The third was about to be raped too, but she apparently began to cry and begged him not to, which Billy's doctors would later say triggered something inside of Billy to suddenly look around confused, see himself atop this woman, and quickly pull away. In other words, his personality switched, he got confused, and he stopped before committing the act. The explanation for the rapes, which Reagan adamantly denied even being capable of, much less guilty of, was that his time in the spotlight had been hijacked by another personality who had so far not been problematic, the lesbian named Adeline. Adeline was supposedly lonely and had cultivated the ability to wish herself onto the spot. So Reagan would start a robbery and Adeline would hijack it to rape the victims. This is a video of Billy at a moment when Adeline was supposedly in the spotlight.
2: They just don't understand what love is, what the need for love is. To be held by someone,
0: just to feel warm.
2: I don't know why I did I was just so lonely. I ruined their lives. I ruined the boys' lives.
0: Now, this last part, I have to say, is awfully convenient. And even in Daniel Keyes' book about the case, there are some elements of the assaults that don't fit with the supposedly attention-seeking Adeline doing them. When one of the victims has a physical reaction to the assault, a sort of involuntary muscle spasm that basically ensures Billy can't finish the act, he yells that it's just his luck to pick someone who can't do it. That doesn't sound like Adeline just wanting warmth. I think it maybe struck someone as a better story to assign the horrific assaults upon women to a supposedly lonely, supposedly female altar. Regardless, whoever committed the crime was in Billy's body and was pretty easily identified by his victims. And inside of Billy's apartment, police found evidence clearly tying him to the crimes. Documents belonging to the rape victims, for example. Even bank receipts. They also found his fingerprints. Once Milligan was arrested, prosecutors were ready for a slam dunk case. But then Billy's court-appointed attorneys stepped in, and each time they interviewed their client, they felt like they were talking to a different person. They would eventually reach out to experts who'd examine Billy and say, Hey, you know, you feel like you're talking to different people because you are. This led to Billy's DID diagnosis, after which he was treated for months before even prosecutors accepted that he was unstable enough that he probably belonged in a hospital rather than a prison.
3: Mental experts say 23-year-old William Milligan has possessed 10 different and conflicting personalities for most of his life. Since Milligan waived his right to a jury trial, statements by psychiatrists were presented to Judge Jay Flowers. Today, Milligan went on trial for rape, kidnap,
2: and aggravated assault. William Milligan had been charged with rape, kidnapping, and robbery. Today, he was found not guilty for reasons of insanity.
0: Billy was released to the care of a Dr. David Call of a mental institution in Athens, Ohio. Dr. Call consulted with Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, the psychiatrist in the infamous Sybil case. The goal would be to merge the many personalities into one unified Billy. Dr. Call speaking at the time.
3: I don't want to convince anyone that doesn't believe it exists. I don't see that as a task. I can't deal with someone who knows nothing about this disorder who tells me I don't believe
0: it. This is tricky, by the way. Because on one hand, you would think it'd be wise to approach with skepticism, someone apparently presenting with DID. But the prevailing belief among doctors who believed in the condition was that if you didn't embrace the many personalities, you had no hope of uniting them. So it's a situation in which confirmation bias is almost a necessity for treatment. Anyway, if Billy's doctors are to be believed, he was making progress, so much so that he was granted the same privileges as others who'd earned them in the institution. Namely, that meant within a year of starting treatment, Billy began first with supervised furloughs away from the hospital and later with unsupervised furloughs. Once this news reached the general public, the reaction was mixed and not in a subdued sort of way. The response was vociferous. Some people felt sorry for Billy and felt he should be given the opportunity to recover from whatever ailment his doctors believed he had. But others thought it was bullshit, thought he was faking the disorder, The doctors were getting too sentimental and forgiving, and in some cases, even greedy. Dr. Wilbur had become quite famous after working with Sybil, after all. And soon the public learned that Dr. Call had connected Billy Milligan with writer Daniel Keyes, a celebrated author whose 1966 book Flowers for Algernon had already been turned into a movie called Charlie. While Billy had plenty of believers, the skeptics joined forces and loudly declared in one unified voice, oh hell no. Milligan, they said, needed to be behind bars. And a lot of the cases we cover were afforded more clarity than people had at the time, thanks to the benefit of hindsight. That's not really the case this time around. Billy's DID diagnosis is about as controversial now as it was back then. Todd Grande, whose voice you heard earlier, thinks DID isn't really its own unique thing.
3: Did Billy Milligan have DID? No, not in my opinion. Billy's behavior better aligns with all four of the Cluster B personality disorders, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic. Also, I think he was just plain lying.
0: In an interview given years ago, Dr. George Harding said otherwise.
3: We uh, approached this case uh, with uh, care, some skepticism, and we have studied him very carefully. We believe that we've documented a definable psychiatric syndrome here, a uh, real illness, and we think that's a significant thing.
0: Whatever the truth, it's safe to say Billy wasn't given the cushy pass for his crimes that some worried he would get. He was the subject of one newspaper editorial after another that took aim at him, at his doctors, at the Athens Mental Hospital. Once Billy was accused of providing money, money he had made from selling his artwork, by the way, to fellow female patients. Those patients spent the money to buy booze to bring back to the hospital. Some on the hospital staff believed that Billy and another male patient had sex with these two women while they were drunk, meaning it was rape because the women were incapacitated and couldn't give consent, and that story outraged the public even more. When the newspapers ignored Billy for a while, he seemed to fare okay and earn back some of his privileges, but every time he was resurrected in the headlines, trouble would follow. He was bounced from Athens to a high security facility in Lima, headed by a doctor who didn't believe in DID. Billy didn't do well there at all, which makes sense whether you believe his diagnosis or not. I mean, the doctor who thinks you're faking it isn't likely to help you, period. After a few years, Billy was able to transfer to another high security facility before he eventually managed to return to Athens, where Dr. Call treated him again. Milligan was finally released in 1988, 11 years after his crimes, after experts agreed his many personalities had fused. He was on probation for three more years, during which he would still get in scrapes with local law enforcement, though in fairness, some of those people publicly stated they were out to get Billy Milligan, so it seems safe to say that some of his scrapes weren't self-induced. He had haters. After Billy was released from probation, he largely faded from the public eye. In the 1990s, word spread that James Cameron or Joel Schumacher wanted to make a movie about his life. Actors like John Cusack, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Colin Farrell were batted around a to star. To date, no movie's ever been made. Now, I personally interviewed a playwright who a few years ago had started to write a script about Billy's life. He said he tried to get rights to Keyes' book, but couldn't secure them. There are ways around that, like by using multiple sources, as I do with this podcast. But even then, the playwright said the project ultimately stalled. Milligan made headlines in 1996 when a California judge ruled he was incapable of handling his own affairs. Around that time, too, Ohio took him to court to recover some of his treatment costs. He'd apparently racked up nearly $500,000 in bills. Ohio was awarded $120,000 from book royalties from the minds of Billy Milligan. At some point, Milligan returned to Ohio. We know this because even though he stayed out of the limelight the last decades of his life, he died of cancer while a patient at a nursing home in Columbus, Ohio, on December 12, 2014. He was 59 years old. Technically, my research on this story began in 2016 when I learned of Billy Milligan's case through a tangential connection to season one of my firstborn podcast, Accused. I'd always meant to circle back, which I was finally pushed to do when Milligan was mentioned in the Hillside Strangler story. I didn't realize when I started, but Netflix made a documentary last fall about Milligan, which was helpful in my research, as was Daniel Key's incredibly well-written, but decidedly biased book, The Minds of Billy Milligan. Everyone acknowledges it includes a good bit of fiction. In fairness, so did some of the contemporary editorials I read. This case is historically significant, but it's also a tough one to parse. Primes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.